You're tuning into the Active Mom Podcast with physical therapist, Dr. Carrie Pagliano, a real mom's guide to all things postpartum return to workouts after baby. If you're a postpartum mom, coach, trainer, or physical therapist looking for answers on how to get back to running, CrossFit, yoga, Pilates, HIIT, you name it without the fear of pelvic floor issues or doing something wrong, this is the podcast for you. Let's start the show. All right, so I have had a secret hip researcher crush for about probably more than 12 or 13 years. Um, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Allison Grimaldi on from Australia with us today. And I, technically it's Friday for you and Thursday for me. I love <laughs> talking with people from Australia because you're in the future. But thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I, I heard about you from our mutual friend, um, Scott Epsley, when he and I used to work together many, many years ago. And he always told me such wonderful things about you and and pointed me in the direction of your research. And so I have been secretly stalking you for a very long time. <laughs> so you had you you had a blog post about the pelvic floor and hip and I was like, I need I need to invite Allison on. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Always, <laughs> always happy to talk hips and pelvises, of course. So what made you kind of one, get into hips and then two, talk to me about where the inspiration for um, this blog post came to talk about hips and the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, one of those familiar stories, I first got an interest in the hip having had, you know, some hip issues myself and not being able to find the answers. And you know, when I started looking into it a long time ago, which is over 20 years ago now, uh, there was very, very little hip research. And so going to the research uh, didn't really provide me the answers that I needed. So as a lot of people do, you go to a weekend courses, any weekend courses you could find, but there wasn't much around actually. No. And again, didn't give me the answers. And so it's something that I had to start, you know, developing my own biologically plausible uh, theories and testing things. And then, you know, leading into my PhD, of course, and even on my master's, I did a master's in sports physiotherapy. And even on my master's program, I did a, a research study around the hip. So, um, you know, and that was in 97. Um, so there's, you know, been a long love affair with the hip and it's, uh, I find it such a fascinating area. It's, um, it's quite complex uh, with all the muscles, but that's what yep. makes it so interesting. And, and we've had a heap of research sort of in the last probably 10 years or so, yes. which has been so amazing because we can gradually just, you know, put together some pieces and put it together with what we know clinically and what we see clinically, which is great. But yeah, the the uh, uh, the inspiration for the blog, I guess, was trying to sort of bring together for both like ortho PTs and for pelvic PTs that connection between uh, the hip and pelvic floor, because so often I'd see uh, patients with. Um, chronic persistent particularly buttock pain sometimes groin pain as well that you know they'd seen multiple people before and I have a look at them and I'm going look this doesn't fit sort of the the typical pattern of a that the main driver is at the hip and they've had good rehab before for the mm -hmm the extra you know the uh, extra pelvic uh, area uh, good sort of hip rehab but there's just been a missing link 
And so in my own clinic, I do uh, super pubic ultrasound, so mm-hmm. real time um, to have a look at pelvic floor. But I'm not a, a pelvic physio. I don't do internal assessments. But I do that as a screening and, of course, you know, go through and ask um pelvic uh, health questions and then if I think there's an issue uh, I think it's really important to send them on and you know get some further insight because I think if you're only thinking outside the pelvis or you're only thinking inside the pelvis you've only got half of the equation such an important connection that I think we need to make sure that we're not too um, tunnel visioned and just sort of thinking about inside or outside and I think that um, you know, is, is important for uh, patients with, you know, persistent issues around uh, the hip and pelvis that we're making sure we're thinking about the whole um, area. Right. Yeah, no, same thing for me. I, I had actually FAI surgery, um, I guess it's 16 years ago now. So back before it was popular, I guess. And there wasn't much to find. And um, it, it was really interesting kind of as we started to get more papers coming out in that kind of time frame that you were talking about, um, if somebody couldn't figure out a hip issue where I worked, it was in the orthopedic or sports PT couldn't figure out that it had to be a pelvic floor problem because their treatment, well, I, I did everything right. So it must be the pelvic floor and it wasn't their doing. And then vice versa, if the pelvic floor PT couldn't address it, and like, oh, it must be a hip issue. It's not my problem. So I, I think, and that's where I sort of found a sweet spot myself being an orthopedic PT and a pelvic floor PT that if nobody wanted, if they wanted to pass the buck, it was going to be me. And I wanted yeah. to know more about the hip anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that that's exactly my experience too. And I guess uh, the other frustration for me in writing the blog was, uh <laughs> And and a frustration for patients, I think, as well, in that if they are being co-treated by two physios or two physical therapists and and one's just looking at the hip and one's just looking at the pelvic floor, uh, then often there's things that don't work in their management programs or particularly in their exercise programs. So one might be, you know, (laughs) not no. great for the pelvic floor what the ortho physio gives them might not be so great for the pelvic floor and vice versa and so I'd seen a lot of my patients with hip conditions who I you know identify that they have you know some pelvic health issues send them on to um, the pelvic health physio but, but then the pelvic health physio sends them to a yoga yes. class and gives them all of these sort of things that are really provoking their hips and I'm going no, we can't do that. And so uh, it, it needs to be very much, there needs to be communication and particularly yes. for the, the sake of the patient that they're not being told by one, no, don't do that thing. And this one's going, no, don't do that thing. So. That's exactly it. And I, I think that's the hardest, honestly, with um, with orthopedic and sports PTs because uh, in, in some ways, because they, from pelvic floor perspective, just think of contraction and, and you know, a, a pelvic floor contraction, whereas some Sometimes on the pelvic floor side, we want to down train and get those muscles to relax and they don't want the orthopedic PT to do strengthening, not realizing that you have to walk that line of, we can do both. We don't have to choose. We don't have to take sides here. But if you don't have that mutual understanding, and that's why I love this blog post, if you don't have that mutual understanding of at least respecting what is going on in the other camp, you really, it just becomes a, a kind of a tugging match that, that no one's really winning. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And I think it's just, it's that communication and like all programs can be modified right. and particularly for, yeah, also PTs uh, prescribing exercise for people who have hypertonic pelvic floor, that that is a really important issue because we don't want them to be, um, you know, squeezing and gripping and, right. and then these sort of exercises that are like, heavy bands around the knees and they're doing heavy banded squats and and uh, bridging and that sort of tends to really you know rev up that excessive co-contraction through mm -hmm. um the posterior hip and uh, um, that seems to sort of feed through into that hypertonic pelvic floor as well so i think our exercise programs then just need to be more fine-tuned and we need to think yes. more about efficiency in our exercise programs and in our in our function and not just about pure strength yep. and so you can still do an exercise program um, in someone who has a hypertonic pelvic floor but there'll be a different uh, a different approach and it'll yes. be more about getting good function but with efficient muscle recruitment so I'm just meaning avoiding you know squeezing your glutes cues or or squeezing right. your pelvic cues and just using movement patterning that naturally stimulates muscles you know or gentle external cues but avoiding squeeze your glute you know squeeze this getting bands on and making muscles work much harder than they actually need yes. to work to achieve a you know a functional you know movement Yes, I, t I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think um, we're we're in a phase, I'm not sure if this is global or if it's just in the United States, where everybody thinks they have dead butt syndrome. And yeah. so, oh God, it's horrible. And so everybody thinks they have to maximally contract their glutes. I had a, a conversation yeah. with a new mom today. And she said, oh, you know, I, I had dead butt syndrome when I was running. Mm -hmm. But she also yeah. used to be um, a power lifter too. And I said, well, your glutes shouldn't do the same thing when you're running as when you're deadlifting over 200 pounds. Mm. It's just a very different activity. You're not going to feel that same thing. And she looked at me like I had four heads and I'm like, but I was told I had dead butt. I'm like, you are now absolved. Like you, you are, you were resurrected. You're not dead anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And those, those sorts of, oh. you know, those sort of beliefs and, and uh, can be really problematic. So I know I've had a, had a patient once who'd come in to me and her initial problem had been gluteal tendinopathy, so mm. lateral hip pain, and she'd gone to a physio and that well-meaning physio had told her that, uh, so she was an age group triathlete, mm -hmm. and so she was told that she needed to keep her glutes squeezed while she run, ran. And so I can't even picture person, that. <laughs> yeah, and being an A-type personality, as most triathletes are, yes. um, she did just that. Oh, my gosh. And she's training with her glutes squeezed, and then she did an endurance event, and oh by the God. end of that event she could hardly walk, but she managed to keep those glutes squeezed the whole time. That's and impressive. then, you know, lots of pain and had a scan, and she had a sacral stress fracture um, because it is not normal to, to keep great big muscles like your glute max on constantly uh, when you're running just creates so much sort of load unnecessarily, you know, yeah. across, and even across bony structures. So yeah. uh, we have to, you know, again, that's, yeah, efficiency is so important. I yeah. mean, What's, glute max should only work sort of late, <sighs> late swing, early stance, and then that's it. But so we have to be careful about the cues that we use and what, what we tell our patients. 
Yes, no, I, I think that's incredibly important. Um, so with with just you, you there's a, a, a kind of a quote here from your blog is that the relationship is is unclear. So what do we know for certain? Um, and just kind of, you know, paraphrasing from the blog, like, what are the things that we know for sure about the hips and the pelvic floor? And what questions? Mm -hmm. I mean, we could probably talk about the questions forever. But what, yeah. what are what are the big outstanding ones that, that we want to go after? Sure. Okay. Well, I, if I give you an academic answer, is there's not many things that we're actually sure of. My 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 answer to any any question like this would be like it depends. I don't know. <laughs> we, well, we, I guess we know one's guess, next to the other. <laughs> I guess the thing that we're most sure of, perhaps, is structure. Yeah. Um, so the anatomy, and yep. um, I guess the two key things uh, related to the topic here about anatomy is is one that the pelvic floor. Uh, is actually a very thin sheet of muscles and uh, the research has been done shows that that sheet of muscle itself that has a quite small physiological cross-sectional area doesn't actually have the capacity to do much more than support against intra-abdominal pressure during sitting and standing. Right. But if you want to squat and lift some heavy groceries or jump or even cough hard, Mm -hmm. uh, then the pelvic floor doesn't have the capacity con to control that. Right. So it needs some help. Um, so we have connective tissue elements and fascia that helps the ligaments. Um, but that relationship with the obturator internus is thought to be important in terms of giving support to the pelvic floor. And so from the anatomy, we know that the obturator internus muscle, which is, of course, one of the deep external rotators of the hip, it lines the, the lower part of the uh, internal surface of the pelvis and uh, where it sits there it forms a really lovely uh, lateral connection for the levator ani muscle so there's a very strong anatomical connection between the obturator internus and the pelvic floor so that thing that's probably what we know for certain uh then that's very helpful though <laughs> so that's helpful so that's an important first thing that we know for certain then i guess there's uh there's quite a bit of research and um, that's really been driven by uh, pelvic health physios, which is great. And that's around the relationship between hip muscle function and pelvic floor muscle function. So there's been research that's been done in those with uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. So, you know, frequency, urgency, you know, stress, urinary incontinence. And so what they've shown is that people with symptoms um, such as those have significant weaknesses in their hip musculature and particularly their abductors and their external rotators and really quite substantial deficits. So we're talking 30 to 40% deficit in hip abductors and maybe 15 to 20% sort of deficits in uh, the hip external rotators. Uh, but what was even more interesting from um, this research, and there's a couple of different papers, that, but they've both found the same thing. So weakness in the hip abductors in people that have the urinary tract um, symptoms. Uh, but in terms of pelvic floor function, pelvic floor function was similar in those without 
um, urgency, frequency, and stress mm. urinary incontinence um, compared to those with. Yeah. And so what is that about? So they've got, got similar sort of pelvic floor function, but one group has symptoms and the other doesn't. Um, but the group that has symptoms has significant weakness in the hip musculature. So it's hard to say what, what the relationship is there. Is it that those that have better obturator internus function, they're able to compensate better for a weak pelvic floor? Or is it that if you have better hip function and femoropelvic control, you've got better ability to uh, sort of resist against, you know, acute forces that come through the hip and pelvis? Yeah. And does that mean that they're less likely to have symptoms? Or is it simply association rather than causation? Right. Not really sure. But it's interesting that there's that link. And so... Then the next question is, so if we do hip rehab for those people who have, right. yeah, does it change it? Right. And uh, the answer is yes. Um, there's some nice evidence that we get changes. So there's evidence that if we're just looking at, for example, pelvic floor muscle strength, can strengthening the hip muscles improve pelvic floor muscle strength mm -hmm. without actively thinking of strengthening right. the, the pelvic floor? Um, and yes, it can. So um, Tuttle and colleagues have done a couple of nice studies and one in a younger group of women who hadn't had any babies. And so they did a 12-week program of um, hip exercises, external rotator exercises. And so uh, after 12 weeks, they showed almost a 50% increase in pelvic floor muscle strength, which is, you know, amazing. Then they redid the same program in an older group of women, an age of around 66 um, or so. And uh, they showed a 35% increase um, in pelvic floor muscle strength, even in uh, that older population as well. Uh, so that's interesting. Of course, I'm not saying that just strengthening the hip muscles improves pelvic floor strength, but doing hip muscle exercises, uh, we know we know from other research that when you contract your hip muscles, you do co-contract your pelvic floor. Right. And right. so when you do hip muscle strengthening, likely you're getting some, you know, load across the pelvic floor and, and getting some strengthening through the pelvic yeah. floor. But perhaps you also you know, just by strengthening the obturator internus, you might also give the pelvic floor a better a better purchase and a better ability to sort of contract as well. That's that's one thing that I always have kind of wondered about with, um, because you'll have people that, and, and again, if you look retrospectively in the research, I don't know that there's been a, a great bit of acknowledgement about um, overactivity or hypertonus or things like that. And I, I know... Um, in stress incontinence, for example, we're just starting to recognize that clinically. It's starting to come through in the, the literature a little bit more. I'm starting to notice it in the context of pelvic organ prolapse. And just even just considering it in the context with, with um, research and saying, okay, well, muscle is weak. Um, you know, when, when you're looking at research, that's always the question I have is, did they truly rule out overactivity? And when you're in, you know, what quantifies that? Because to your point, if you have muscle, like the pelvic floor that's coming across as weak, and then you're activating or working on the hip muscles, and it's improving what's going on in the pelvic floor, did you just improve its ability to or capacity to to activate better or more efficiently? Um, mm -hmm. So that's always a question I have. I, I think lots of times, um, 
the more novice PTs are just going, you know, one for one. If you strengthen here, then this automatically gets stronger. And I'm like, mm, it's not that simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not yeah. that simple. Uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, that's one of the things that we don't know, is right. it, isn't it? That um, we've got some, you know, early research like this, but we can't just go, so for any pelvic floor issue. That'd be nice. <laughs> just do this hip program of course you know that's not how it works is it no. and, and it's going to be quite different as you just mentioned if they're if they've just got that weak hypotonic pelvic floor right it's very different yeah who has a weak hypertonic pelvic floor. right um so i think that that's where we need to you know do further research and right. and find better pathways because we still don't know what are the best hip exercises to give? Uh, right. And we'll, we'll again, talk about that in a bit. You, we, you, yeah. we, there's, there's a controversial one that I, I was taught a very long time ago not to like. And so I'm, I'm all on board. But uh, <laughs> we, we do things differently here in the States for some reason. But, um, but that, back to the, the relationship between the obturator internus, I think that's, um, again, I was fortunate. Scott taught us uh, real-time ultrasound. So I actually have it in, in my clinic. Um, it's a tool that I've used for many, many years. I feel like that's such an incredible tool for teaching clients their own anatomy because mm. it's such an, a bizarre place. And for somebody who's, I've done internal work for 21 years, I think, like just thinking about that part of your body, it's hard to think about it three-dimensionally. And, you know, where is your hip in relationship to the bladder? And it's so easy with ultrasound just to show, you know, with a little internal and external rotation of the hip, oh, this is where your hip muscles are in relationship to the bladder. And for somebody who has a hip pathology or hip symptoms or urgency frequency or any sort of bladder issue and a hip issue, I'm like, this can be a really important understanding that your hip issues may be connected to what's going on with your pelvic floor, or your bladder or things like that. And I think it's for people to see that in black and white is so much more helpful than me just saying, oh, well, trust me, these things are connected, you know? Um, yeah. It's amazing what just people understanding their own bodies and their own anatomy can do. Um, so I, yeah. I love that piece of it. Yeah, it's a wonderful tool. I love real-time ultrasound. And not that uh, I think sometimes uh, it's interpreted that if you use real-time ultrasound, that's all you do. And you're just going to, you know, look at deep muscles and that's all you do. I know it's just, it's just one little part yeah. of a much bigger picture. And, yep. and some people really value um, from that part of the picture. Some people don't need it, you know, yeah. and, you know, it's more, uh, you know, general functional strengthening and yep. things that they need, but some people it's a really important part of the puzzle. And mm -hmm. if, if it's not addressed, then, you know, they often continually fail rehab until that foundation is, is addressed. Yeah. For, for me, again, having, you know, the ability to do internal and the, the, the real-time ultrasound, I've, I've played back and forth for years. Sometimes I'll do internal first and then predict what I'm going to see on ultrasound. And then sometimes, usually what I'll do is I'll do ultrasound first and then predict what I'm going to see internally. Cause sometimes I get two kind of different pieces of information that just make the picture much more comprehensive. So mm. I, I may see, you know, not much movement, um, you know, with a, an, a cognitive pelvic floor contraction on ultrasound, mm. but 
internally, it's just a very, very superficial, it just doesn't translate to the bladder. And so we need to go deeper, something along those lines. So it's, it's been so helpful for me to be able to kind of, again, give people that, that depth of understanding of what's going on. So I, I, I have so much fun with it. But <laughs> It's a great tool. All right. So since we're talking uh, orthopelvic and, and, and the, the two, like we, we miss things on both sides, like for, for you, mostly because you're coming from the orthopedic sports side of things, like what things you feel like get them miss the most. Um, and then, you know, from a, a pelvic side, what orthopedic things are kind of getting missed? Cause I, I know here in the States, again, we've got a lot more therapists that are going straight out of PT school into pelvic health and not getting good solid orthopedic or hip background. So what, what are you seeing? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess if we're thinking about also sports um, PTs first, um, I guess there's two main things that um, is important to consider. One, making sure that we don't miss those cases that where the primary driver is actually within the pelvis. So it's a pelvic floor issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so those patients who might present with particularly deep buttock pain is probably um, ones that I've seen missed the most. Mm -hmm. And or they might be presenting with, um, you know, symptoms like deep gluteal syndrome type symptoms right. with uh, even irritation of the sciatic nerve in the buttock and, um, and their, their back's being treated and their hips being treated. Um, but there hasn't been enough attention to what might be driving uh, hypertonicity through the obturator internus. Right. And so sometimes that can actually be an internal driver uh, through pelvic floor. And that can be either, you know, really weak pelvic floor that, you know, just obturator internus is working to try to help or hypertonic pelvic floor, and of course we can have both of those things together, but right. um, where it's sort of feeding through to the obturator internus. Uh, so I think, you know, I've seen patients that I saw one just recently, you know, long-term been diagnosed with gluteal tendinopathy again and um, got pain sort of retrotrochanteric, so just behind the grade trochanter there. And I did all the tests and she wasn't positive for gluteal tendinopathy and mm -hmm. um, didn't really make sense for a, a primary hip condition. So I said, look, I want you to go and have, I did a super pubic ultrasound, mm -hmm. nothing mm -hmm. happening there in the pelvic floor. And I said, look, I'm not sure whether you're really weak or really, you know, hypertonic. Right. you need to go and have an internal assessment. And like within three treatments with the pelvic health physio, her symptoms had, you know, pretty much resolved. Mm -hmm. um, the, the issue was, you know, within the pelvis and she was so grateful. And, you know, I only saw her once. Um, but finally, you know, the problem got to point know, her in the right direction. Yeah. Point it in the right direction. So yep. I think it's important that one, we consider it. Um, two, that we ask questions about pelvic health and I think sometimes that gets you know we're busy and we're moving on with these buttock symptoms but right. anything around the hip and pelvis we need to ask you know questions about pelvic health and if you don't have the skills to sort of you know tease that out more if there's any suspicion that there's some sort of pelvic health um, contributor or even if it's coexisting it's important for that person's quality of life that that's yeah. addressed well but go and get it assessed early um, yes. because you can go through three months of treatment and you find that you haven't got where you hope to get um, with 
extra pelvic treatments because there's been at least a component within the pelvis. Whereas if you identify that early, uh, then if you're both working and working as a team together, um, then hopefully at the end of that, you know, treatment session that you've, you know, achieved a lot more than, you know, just um, just addressing. That's you know, great the, advice. For example. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing for also on sports PTs is is just being aware of the type of exercises that you're giving if the patient has a concurrent pelvic floor dysfunction or urinary continence um, issue mm-hmm. that you need to consider what exercises you're, yep. you're giving them because it might be, you know, problematic. Yep. And so it's just, you know, and we've already mentioned that. So it's just that communication yeah. is important. So I guess that's for the orthophysiologists. For the pelvic PTs, I guess um, from the other perspective then, if you've got someone with, for example, a hypertonic pelvic floor, um, considering that the primary driver might be outside the pelvis. And so that can be dysfunction with, you know, hip muscles and particularly those, you know, deep rotators and the obturator internus. So if you don't have the skills to um, assess, you know, the hip musculature uh, and, and do a, a nice you know, rehab program for the hip musculature, you know, again, referring to, you know, someone with some expertise in the hip and sort of working with them, um, Uh, you know, can be really helpful to make sure that um, you're dealing with both internal drivers and external drivers. And then um, same as uh, for the ortho PTs in terms of exercises that are prescribed. Um, Some of the exercises that are particularly prescribed for uh, hypertonic pelvic floor can be really provocative for hip conditions, particularly the high hip flexion you know type Mm -hmm. exercises and you know often yoga like I've had so many of my patients referred you know for yoga and and yoga involves lots of end range um, sustained holding which can be really provocative um, for some hip joint conditions um, Mm -hmm. or even tendon conditions and we see a lot of concurrence of gluteal tendinopathy um, in and pelvic floor dysfunction because they're mm-hmm. often deconditioned older women and we're seeing both of those things right. sort of together. Um, but just, you know, telling them to go and do a yoga class can really <laughs> stir up their gluteal tendon. Yes. Well, that's why I think like, it, and, and this will kind of go to this, this next piece here. Um, you know, it, it, I think we get over oversimplification on either side with exercises. Yeah. So I think, you know, lots of times sports and orthopedics, if they're trying to relax the pelvic floor, though they might go to these extreme things or same things with pelvic floor PTs, you know, just go to extreme or pelvic floor PTs are going to do the hip exercises, which includes our not good friend, the clam, um, which I, I don't know where pelvic PTs got in their head that this is like, if, if you're going to do a pelvic, if, if you're going to do a hip exercise, that this is the one you have to do. So yeah. you, you did a post somewhere, I don't know how many years ago, unbanning the clam. And again, uh, I, that that's something I was taught many, many years ago. And I, I have a feeling you just, you, you say it so much better and you're going to explain it so much better. So what, why are we not a fan of the clam? Okay. Um, <laughs> take a so breath. Let, let me just um, uh, first say that like, if, you know, the literature that we've talked about, if you look at the exercises that are given in the literature, to be fair, they've included clams and, mm-hmm. you know, sustained 
isometric holding type exercises that are, are sometimes not actually that friendly for, for hip function right. or for pelvic floor function uh, because of that inefficiency and, and gripping sort of strategies that it encourages. So that's why I think a big, you know, um, deficit in the literature at the moment is the type of exercises that need to I be done. Agree. So so I would I say don't just go to the literature and go, well, just do those exercises for everyone. I think we have to be, you know, a little bit more um, mindful of what exercises we're giving. So the clam. Um, so the clam, I just think, one, it provokes pain in a lot of patients with hip conditions. Yeah. So particularly, for example, gluteal tendinopathy, which I've mentioned a couple of times, but it's really irritating for that condition. And mainly because I think, you know, it's the the lifting and rotating and coming in and out of an adducted position. So you're starting in an adducted position. So we've got the iliotibial band wrapping around that greater trochanter and causing some compression at the lateral hip. And then you're lifting up and down from there. And so I think what probably happens is that you get a little bit of friction of the yep. ITB over those painful structures as well. And so for people who already have painful lateral hips, that often just provokes the situation. And so for patients I see with gluteal tendinopathy who've been doing clams and people who haven't progressed, they've often been doing clams um, and or hip flexion adduction stretches. Take those yes. two things away. And they often start settling down because those things have often been really irritating them. But even mm -hmm. for hip joint conditions, it can be quite irritable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, after hip arthroscopy, for example, because yes. we've often got anterior rim pathologies like around the rim of the acetabulum. And so now when you do those, um, that sort of action, we get, again, we sort of get a, a frictional movement of the iliopsoas tendon across, you know, around that acetabular rim. So mm -hmm. sometimes that can be quite provocative for patients with uh, anterior rim pathologies as well. So from a pain aggravation perspective, so that's one reason um, why I don't like uh, clams, uh, but then a lot of PTs will say to me, oh, but I can modify that and I can just do this and do that and, you know, modify this exercise and make it better. And I'm going, but why? Because it's not a fantastic exercise anyway. So, like, the, my other problem with it is that it's a low-value exercise. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so yeah. it, it only, you know, really targets, you know, certain muscles. So if you're want to if you want to improve for example the strength or function in the the, the gluteals the gluteus medius and minimus which is often why it's given if you ask most pts what's your number one exercise for gluteus medius it'll be the clam mm -hmm. and you go but we we've got fine way emg evidence now that really you're only recruiting the posterior part um, right. of of that of glute med and if we look at where the dysfunction lies and where we get atrophy most in people with hip conditions, it's actually more likely to be anterior. Um, you end up getting posterior dysfunction as well, but where we see most atrophy and where it seems to start is more in, in the anterior aspects of the gluteus medius and minimus, the anterior to middle aspects. So doing an exercise that just focuses on the posterior aspects may not be actually getting to where the, the, the worst dysfunction is. So yeah. I think we need to think about the whole of glute min and meat and not just the posterior aspects. But the people that I see who've done lots and lots of clams, the patients I see, what they seem to develop is this hypertrophy around the anterolateral corner of the hip. So mm. they can 
lots of sartorius yes um, yep. doing the exercise because sartorius is a flexor and abductor and external rotator that's the thing um, yeah yeah so we see lots of sort of you know hypertrophy around that corner and when we see people with abductor dysfunction so we see weakness and atrophy in glute med and min but together with that we seem to see this hypertrophy around the anterolateral corner which is so tfl sartorius um, yes proximal vl yep. um so that exercise uh, you know for people who've doing been doing that as their primary exercise it just seems to reinforce those um those issues that those yep. imbalances if you like um, whereas if you're doing a bit of it, if you don't have a hip condition and you're doing a bit of it in conjunction with lots of other good weight-bearing exercises, it's probably okay. It is what it is, yeah. But if you've got a patient who, um, you know, patients will only do so many exercises, then you want to make sure that the exercises that you are prescribing are high-value exercise and you're going to give, get the most bang for your buck, if you like. It's much easier for us to actually get better recruitment and balance in that abductor system if you have your foot in contact with the ground. Yeah. Uh, because gluteus minimus particularly is really affected by lack of weight-bearing loading mm -hmm. and probably the deep parts of gluteus medius as well. So they are anti-gravity muscles and they love that feedback from the floor. So if you're going to do strengthening, you're just already one step ahead if you get your foot in contact the with floor. the floor. And we've got yeah. evidence for that, that, you know, if you, when your foot's in contact with the floor, you'll get a better balance between glute, med and min and TFL. So why make, why make our jobs harder? <laughs> you know, I'm also getting my, getting my results as easily as possible. Me get too. Get on the floor um, and it's, it's much easier to, you know, get that stimulus. So I, I would just say that, um, you know, make your life easier, make the patient's life easier by, um, you know, making it easier to stimulate those muscles mm -hmm. um, without having to, you know, tweak this and tweak that and I'm going to put my foot here and my knee there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I very much, I, I, again, I mean, my, my surgery was, I guess, 15, 16 years ago now, and there really wasn't that much. But I remember the things that they gave me to do would be like clamshells and stretch your hip flexors. And I just remember it just irritated it. And I'm like, I'm not doing it anymore. It's not helping me. It's making it worse. And one of the best things for my hip, granted, it was many, many years later, it was actually six years ago was when I started weightlifting and started doing mm -hmm. Um, you know, heavy Olympic lifting and I got my foot on the floor and I'm lifting heavy and it hasn't ever felt this good. And so mm -hmm. I just wish that all the load research had come a little bit sooner. <laughs> but I don't know. Some of us, I guess, had to go first. I don't know. <laughs> so. Yep. <laughs> yep, definitely. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of promote you here. Um, if you want to find um, more about Allison, she's got both um, professional facing. So for physios, if you want education, she's got a whole membership um, where you can just learn all things hips. Um, 
that you can go there. And you also have a lot of, of patient resources as well um, in the blog. So um, she's on Instagram with Dr. Allison Grimaldi. And then um, same thing. I, I love this, the streamlined branding um, for the website as well. Um, for you, Allison, like what, what's the thing that you kind of um, looking for? You're, you're, you're excited most about making an impact with uh, further research or, or further work that you're doing. What, what are you kind of looking ahead for right now? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, um, I'm doing some further work in the gluteal tendinopathy um, area. And so we're looking at trying to uh, see what outcome measures um, can mm. be best used for uh, tracking outcomes in this population. And then I'm also involved in another pilot trial at the moment, but a, a trial in uh in Ireland that's been headed up by Helen French over there. And it's a bit exciting because we're looking at um, the feasibility of um, a, a cut-down version of the, the LEAP trial. So the LEAP Ooh. trial that we did for the tendopathy was, you know, 14 sessions of physio because um, wow. we were trying to give, you know, optimal um optimal outcomes and optimal sort of treatment but you know sometimes that is not uh, feasible in right. particularly public health um, situations so we're looking at a you know a cut down version of that to see if it's can we achieve uh, um, some results in um, an NHS type uh, situation with uh, you know six treatments rather than 40 oh. um, you know 14 treatments and but at the moment it's just feasibility trial right. so then um, hopefully might go on to a, a full trial where we okay. can sort of test it and look at outcomes which would which would be very exciting so um, yeah. very we'll keep an eye out for that then yeah we'll yeah Fantastic. Well, again, if you are e either in sports ortho or pelvic health and you're in physio or even coaching or training and want to understand a little bit more about the hip, um, for somebody who really knows the research, definitely check out um, Allison's stuff. And again, if you're, you're having hip issues as well and you're trying to understand that a little bit more, great patient resources as well. Dr. Allison Grimaldi, thank you so very much. I appreciate your time and your wisdom and sharing with us tonight. Thanks. Thanks so much, Carrie. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell a friend to do the same. Are you a postpartum mom or postpartum pro wanting to know more about getting back to running after baby? Check out all my free goodies on carriepagliano.com. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carrie Pagliano and her guests to the show. The content should not be taken as medical advice and is for entertainment purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.